This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 294. This podcast is brought to you by MetPro. As you guys have heard probably for a few episodes now, we've been talking about how I've been able to lose 30 pounds using MetPro's system by working with a nutrition coach. And one great result of that has been being able to get my marathon times back down again. So it's been very exciting. If you're interested in helping your performance or your body composition goals, you can go to metpro.co forward slash MTA and find out all about their concierge coaching nutrition services. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to go the distance. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Dean Carnazes ultra runner, best-selling author, and running ambassador around the world. And in the quick tip segment, you will hear how to manage hunger during marathon training while still losing weight and keeping your energy levels stable. And of course, you can get all of our back podcast episodes and more inside the Academy. Learn what it takes to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So, all right, lot to get to in this episode. We're excited to have Dean Carnazes back on the show, and we have both signed up for a couple new marathons. Angie, looks like you're going to be doing a marathon in Connecticut. That's right. I'm signed up for the Hartford Marathon in Hartford, Connecticut on October 12th. So what prompted you to sign up for that one? Well, I've been wanting to get Connecticut on the schedule, and the, I've heard a lot of good things about the Hartford Marathon, so I'm excited to be in the capital of Connecticut. Yep, and I'm also signed up for a marathon this fall. It's going to be in Austria It's called the Kaiser Marathon because it takes place in the Kaiser Mountains in the Tyrol region of Austria. So it's a mountain trail race in the Alps. starts in a little town called Zoll, Austria, which is about an hour from Innsbruck. And it's about an hour and a half uh, south of Munich. So yeah, right there in Austria, it'll be my first time running in that country. I'm excited to be there, although the race is pretty intimidating and (laughs) kind of lives up to our philosophy of sign up for a race that scares you. According to the website, this race has 2,345 meters of elevation gain, so over 7,000 feet elevation gain. And then we finish up on the top of this mountain at uh, 6,000 feet, which I can handle, but there's a seven-hour cutoff. So no napping under trees, (laughs) (laughs) no laying down on the trail. I can't linger and take a lot of photos, I guess. And according to the website, you are required to bring a safety pack, which includes a rescue blanket, a whistle, gloves, beanie, a rain jacket, and a phone. And I even emailed the race, and I'm like, wait, is this really required? And they said, yes, unless the weather's nice. You can't start the race unless you have all that stuff. Wow. I guess if it gets fogged in, you know, because it is October, and you're up in the mountains, they don't want people getting lost. Or freezing their ears off. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, exciting stuff. Once again, it's called the Kaiser Marathon in Austria on October 5th. If you've uh, done this race, love to hear what you think about it. Or if you live in Austria, shoot me an email. You can send it to trevor at marathontrainingacademy.com. So Angie, what else is going out there in the running world? Sounds like Zach Bitter had a good day, right? Yeah, he recently set the 100-mile world record at six days under the dome in Milwaukee. So it's an indoor track. He did the 100 miles at the time of 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. 
And then he went on, he kept running to set the 12-hour record in which he ran 104.8 miles. So to set the 100-mile record, he ran 363 laps around the track with a pace of 6 minutes, 48 seconds per mile, wow. or 4 minutes, 13 seconds per kilometer. So he For was, 100 miles. He was booking it. <laughs> I can't even imagine running a marathon at that pace. It'd be hard for me to run a mile at that pace. <laughs> That's amazing. Pretty phenomenal stuff. All right, we've got a couple shout-outs we'd like to give. Uh, the first one comes from Rachel. She says, I used the beginner half-marathon plan for my three half-marathons this summer and had amazing success. Each of my halves were so fun due to being excellently prepared. She says, I'm like you, Angie. I don't miss any training days. I'm now 13 weeks into the full marathon beginner training plan, and I feel amazing. I'm feeling strong, excited, and prepared seven weeks out for my first full marathon, and definitely nervous, too. I never imagined that when I started running 14 years ago, that I'd be running three times per week, biking four times per week, and strength training three times per week while training for a full marathon. I am sometimes in shock of my own strength and capabilities. Thanks, Angie, Trevor, and the MTA family for being so wonderfully encouraging and knowledgeable. You really can run a marathon and change your life. And that comes from Academy member Rachel. Well, congrats, Rachel, on being so faithful in your training. I can definitely see how it's paying off for you. So, yeah, keep up the great work. And what can you say to her, Angie, and for others listening who are training for their first marathon? And they're pretty nervous about it. Well, definitely the nerves is part of the process. So I would say don't resist being nervous. Just try to embrace it and realize that everyone out there training for their first marathon is nervous as well. I mean, I remember being super nervous for my first marathon. And the nerves just mean that you care, that you're invested in the process. You can use that nervousness and kind of channel it into excitement. So when you have those thoughts of anxiety, like, you know, do I have what it takes? Um, just remind yourself that it means that you're excited, that you care about it, and that you're going to be able to channel that nervous energy into results on Marathon Day. Yeah, and trust the training. That's right. Do the work and trust the training. I like to not do the work and still trust the training. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're trusting in, but <laughs> somehow it usually works out for you. This note comes from a listener in Australia named Adam. He says, Good day, MTA. At the start of the year, my best friend, also named Adam, and I thought we would challenge ourselves and try to run a marathon, having never ran more than 12 kilometers. On our journey, we came across your podcast and both listened religiously during our runs. We thought we would let you know that we completed our first marathon, the City to Surf Marathon in Perth, Western Australia. It was an amazing and awesome experience. My best friend, Adam, is more like Angie, very routine and set out a solid plan and was very regimented. I was more like Trevor. Thank you, Trevor, for helping me believe I could. He says, <laughs> I stuck to a quote-unquote plan but enjoyed my beer and post-workout snacks. We loved our first marathon except the last four kilometers and can't wait for the next one. I've never been happier drinking a beer holding our medals. And that comes from Adam and Adam in Australia. See, it's all worth it, guys. That's right. You got that beer. You got that medal. You just feel like a total badass because you went the distance. It's just great. There's nothing like it. I just want to have a beer with those guys. These guys sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> we need to go to Australia, Angie. Oh yeah, definitely. And this note comes from Andrew. He says, thanks Angie and Trevor for your wonderful podcast. It helped me do the Mount Everest base camp hike. 15 days, six to seven hours of hiking and gaining 1,200 feet every day. We got up as high as 18,200 feet. I'm running New York City Marathon in November. It's my first marathon ever, and I just hit the big 5-0, so I'm very excited. Well, good way to celebrate turning 50, hiking a base camp and running a marathon in the same year. Can't wait to see what he does when he turns 100. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, congrats to all of you out there taking action in your health and life. We're glad to be on this running journey with you. Just a couple weeks ago, the podcast passed the uh, 8 million total download mark, which is just blows us away. And we don't take it for granted. We just appreciate all of you that listen, that subscribe to the show, and that have shared it with your friends. And we're just excited to keep keep it rolling. Another 8 million uh, downloads. <laughs> So in just a minute, we're going to jump into our conversation with the great Dean Carnazes. Before we do, I'd like to thank On Running for sponsoring this episode. They're a company born in the Swiss Alps with one goal, and that is to revolutionize the sensation of running. That's right. The entire company is based around the idea of zero gravity running, and On has quickly become the fastest growing running brand in the world. On has an emphasis on clean and minimalistic design, as well as its sole technology, which gives you the sensation of running on clouds. These shoes are so comfortable, you won't want to take them off. And they have a full range of shoes and apparel to power your full day on and off the road or trail. I introduced um, On Running Shoes into my personal training back in February of this year, and I really wasn't looking for a new shoe, but I fell in love with it right away. It is so comfortable, such a great ride, and I've pretty much been wearing them exclusively ever since. And we're so happy to have them as a sponsor. You can try On's yourself for 30 days and put them to the test, which means you can actually run in them before you decide to keep them. And if you're not convinced, send them back for a full refund. Just head to on-running.com forward slash MTA. That's on-running.com, on-running.com forward slash MTA. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Tiger Balm Active. No matter what kind of runner you are, whether you're a beginner or you do ultra marathons, soreness and stiffness can be part of the experience. But setting new personal records shouldn't mean that you feel wrecked all the time, um, whether you're strength training or doing tough runs. And Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel can prevent that from happening. This muscle gel helps cool your muscles down after you've pushed yourself hard. And even if you don't feel sore yet, you can apply it and it helps combat muscle fatigue. So it's a great thing to use right after a workout. The Tiger Balm Active Gel aids in recovery with a cooling then warming feel that will work out whatever tension a foam roller can't do alone. And one of the best parts about it is it doesn't have that sticky feel that a lot of gels have. So go to your local CVS or Rite Aid store today and pick up Tiger Balm Active Muscle Gel. And when you're there, you can grab their Muscle Rub and Spray. That's Tiger Balm Active, available at your local CVS or Rite Aid. All right, well, we're going to play our conversation with Dean Carnazes. A lot of people know about him from his first book, Ultra Marathon Man, which was a runaway bestseller. Yeah, I'd say he's one of the most recognizable running figures of our time. Dean's newest book is called Running for Good, 101 Stories for Runners and Walkers to Get You Going. And uh, we haven't talked to him in a, in a little while, a couple of years, I think. So one thing we wanted to do was just kind of see what he's been up to the last couple of years. He had an injury uh, down in Chile. He was doing a trail run and fell and was taken to the hospital. We'll ask him about that. He also has a story in this book about running on the Silk Road through Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan, which is a story I haven't heard yet. So we ask him about that. Plus, he'll talk about how to stay mentally strong while you're out there doing your marathon. Dean Karnazes was named one of the top 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, and Men's Fitness hailed him as one of the fittest men on planet Earth. He's basically a running machine. So just to give you guys an idea of what this guy has done, because people might not know his whole story, in addition to doing like some of the toughest ultra marathons around the world multiple times, he's also ran across the U.S. from California to New York City, which is 3,000 miles, and he might actually hold the record for furthest distance still. He ran 350 continuous miles for going sleep for three nights. Now that sounds miserable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Angie's like, wait, no sleep? <laughs> Count me, me out. <laughs> so anyway, amazing guy and really down-to-earth guy. I mean, we've met him in person, wouldn't you say, Angie? Yeah, that's right. I was able to run a mile with him during my 50-miler my in Wisconsin uh, a few years ago. You just came up on him and were like, hey, hey, Dean, how you doing? Yeah, and I was like, you know, thanks for being on our podcast a couple of times. And we started talking and yeah, just, just a wonderful human being. And you passed him, right? Well, he was having some GI distress, <laughs> so then I ended up going on. But of course, that just made him seem all the more real, you know, because he is human, you know, despite all of his running accolades. Um, and sometimes we all suffer from GI distress, so that's right. It's keeping it real. We should have reminded him of that story. I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, here's our conversation with Dean Carnazes. Well on my way. Well on my way. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Dean Carnazes. Dean, great to have you back on the uh, MTA podcast. So where are you talking to us from today? I actually am at home today, which is uh, a place called Marin County. Uh, I'm about 10 miles north of San Francisco. So if you drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, if you've been to California and Northern California, uh, that's where I'm situated. And you said you like to walk around uh, when you do these interviews, right? Yeah, no, I uh, I appreciate you guys not wanting to, I don't want to dis. Skype, but yeah, Skype, you're kind of stuck in a static position. And I, I just find that uh, motion stirs emotion, that the conversation to me is always more lively when the guest is moving around. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. I was just thinking back to my, my phone life, which is not very extensive, but whenever I'm on a call, I like to be walking and moving as well. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Well, you know, I wrote uh, my last book before this collaboration with uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul was was The Road to Sparta. And, you know, I did a lot of research um, into uh, ancient Greece. And one of the characters who I think everyone knows, um, Aristotle, uh, he, he invented a school called the Lyceum. And his classes, they were called the Peripatoi or Peripatetics, which meant the wanderers in Greece. And that's because he taught his classes walking around. He said, for you to learn, I don't want to be inside uh, a man-made structure. Let's go walk around. So he would teach his lectures walking around Athens. So I think there's something to be said, even from early uh, ancient Greece, about movement and the ability to uh, be creative. And you truly know that your audience was with you if they were willing to follow you around. <laughs> <laughs> They're desperate, I guess. Yeah, maybe right. handing out food. Maybe had gel packs with them. Well, I imagine <laughs> a lot of our audience is listening to this while they're either walking or running or perhaps commuting. So some type of movement. So that's one of the great things about podcasts is be able to take it with you wherever you go. Yeah. Hopefully they're not stuck on a plane right now. <laughs> Or stuck in traffic. Don't you hate that? For I mean, every runner that... Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> All the traveling that you do, you probably spend a lot of time on planes. I spend uh, a lot of time on planes. And believe it or not, I spend a lot of time in traffic when I'm traveling. You know, traffic is a global phenomena, uh, not a good one. Every city I go to, whether it's Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, uh, you know, or it's Santiago in, in Chile, everyone says, man, the traffic here is horrible. The traffic here is horrible. And... It is. I mean, almost every city across this world has horrible traffic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. And I don't own a car, and that's part of the reason. For those that don't know your, your origin story as a runner, uh, maybe we can get into that for a minute. You actually didn't run long distance until age 30, right? Yep. 
that's exactly right. I uh, I was a, I used to love to run as a kid, but when I became a teenager, I thought running was boring, that it was just a waste of time. So I stopped running. And then for you guests that haven't heard it, I was in a bar on my 30th birthday in San Francisco uh, doing what most <laughs> most people do on their 30th birthdays. I was getting <laughs> very drunk with my friends. And at midnight, I decided that uh, I wasn't going to have another round of tequila to celebrate my 30th birthday. I was going to run 30 miles instead. And so I walked out of the bar, three sheets to the wind, and started running into the night. And I knew there's a town 30 miles south of San Francisco called Half Moon Bay. I knew if I made it there, I'd run 30 miles. So I basically ran straight through the night. I ran for about seven hours and made it 30 miles and decided that that at that point, I was going to change my life and become a runner. <laughs> what kind of shoes were you wearing? You know, people ask me this. I, they, I think they were Reebok, like re, they were like the shoes I used for gardening. I didn't own running <laughs> shoes. And I had this, these gardening shoes that I used to wear. And I think they were old Reeboks of some sort. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's bring it up to more current times. In your, your new book here, Running for Good, you have the, the introductory chapter is written by you. And you talk about running on the Silk Road through Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and I don't think I've heard that adventure yet. I haven't heard that story. Well, you know, most people, when you say those countries, they don't even know where they're at. And I have to be honest, I, you know, I'd heard of Uzbekistan. Uh, I, you know, I'd heard of Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, but I, I couldn't on a map say this is where they're at. Kazakhstan, that's where Borat is from, right? Kazakhstan. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the only thing Americans know. Yeah, Borat is from <laughs> Isn't he from that country? But it, it is it was an amazing place. So the U.S. Uh, Department of State uh, got in touch with me and said, you know, we're we're getting ready to celebrate 25 years of diplomatic relations with those three countries, and we'd like to send you there as an athlete ambassador. And they said, you know, there's a um, a route. It's on the ancient Silk Road that connects all three of these countries. And it's 525 kilometers. You know, would you be willing to run between these three countries? Wow. And I thought, what an, an incredible opportunity. So I, I said, yes. <laughs> and next thing I knew, uh, you know, I was, I was signed up for this adventure to be an athlete ambassador. And basically, that means, you know, I had these diplomatic obligations as I was running sometimes 40 or 50 miles a day, you know, to go to stop at schools, to stop at um, municipalities, to give talks, you know, to meet people. And it was really a, an extraordinary experience in that those three countries are largely untouched by American culture. It's, mm -hmm. it's amazing. I didn't see one McDonald's, not one Starbucks. I mean, a very, very different cultural experience. And to me, it was, it was really uh, a beautiful one in that the people just seemed so happy. <laughs> right. You know, they, they, I don't know why, they just seemed uh, a little less stressed. I think I might know why. And a little more joy. <laughs> yeah, I might know why too. A couple, yeah. But anyway, um, that was the, uh, the ancient Silk Road experience. That's awesome. So how many days did it take you to, to run all those kilometers? Uh, I think I was on the road for 10 days total. Okay. Yeah, and it was in July. So for perspective, Uzbekistan is right above um, Afghanistan, yeah. and I, you know, most people have heard how hot it gets in Afghanistan. It was extremely, extremely warm. So running wasn't easy. Were you accompanied by any other runners or interpreters? You know, I should write a book about that experience. Yes, it you was, should. <laughs> it was 
wild. I mean, here I am, an American guy. I had one uh, like handler from the State Department, a great guy, but he was he was overwhelmed. I mean, we had so much media attention from these countries coming our way, and no one spoke English. Very few people spoke English. So the crew that had been assigned to support me were these Russians, and we had this big uh, like a combi van that was horrible for crewing. It had like one small door that you could get into. And I had, you know, I had a cooler, you know, I had all the things a runner needs while he's running 40 to 50 kilometers a day uh, inside this van. So they, they didn't speak English. I didn't speak Russian. And I had to train these guys by kind of pointing and, you know, gesturing with, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. But the first couple of days, my experience was basically I'd be running, I'd run for maybe 10 miles uh, with a, a handheld water bottle you know, in 110 degree temperatures. And I'd show up at the van just fried, you know, needing ice water, <laughs> needing food, gels, you know, all the things a runner needs. And when I'd show up at the van, all of the, the Russian support crew would be huddled in the shade of the van smoking cigarettes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and there was just, there was no wind at all. So I'd just run up to this van that's just engulfed with secondhand smoke <laughs> oh, no. and, and try to like, squeeze through this one door into this van and inside this van it's like a sauna and, and try to you know get some water for myself so it was it was quite an experience what were those guys doing other than driving the van they didn't crew for you they thought it was the most entertaining thing ever watching me do this they they <laughs> they thought it was hilarious <laughs> who in their right mind would want to do this right <laughs> yeah i, I mean uh, it was great. And, you know, they, there was a doctor and the doctor just looked at, he never once did anything. He just looked at me and laughed. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, <laughs> I think I know they had vodka in there because they, they smelled of alcohol. So I know they were drinking and they were, they were really great guys. I mean, we all, we all laughed a whole lot, but there wasn't a lot of language communication going on. So how did the, the people of those countries respond to you running by? Well, most of the people that I saw or met along the way, had never never met an American before. So I was their first, the, literally the first American they'd ever seen. And here I am, you know, I'm a, an American diplomat, but I'm, I'm running down the side of the road, high-fiving them, you know, kids are running with me. Uh, it was a very bizarre experience. They, they were so engaged. I mean, most diplomats, you know, they, that the State Department sends over to these countries, you know, they, they go to the embassy, you know, they're in a suit, they give a talk, you know, behind a podium, and then, you know, they kind of walk away. But here's this guy who's immersed in basically in their lives, just running down their streets. So every town I went to and passed through, literally every single person from that town would be standing on the street watching me run by. Wow. Serious. And a lot of them had signs. It was, it was incredible. And I mean, the State Department briefed me uh, on what they thought it would be like, the experience. And it was so much different than what actually happened. For instance, the end of the first day, I come running into town and the State Department prepared for me for this. They said, you know, these these were nomadic cultures. So when you get to their town, they're going to want to welcome you. And I thought, OK, well, that's that's kind of cool. So I come running into this township and there are probably 3000 people there and the mayor is there. And they also said, you know, they're going to prepare food for you. That's kind of what they did when when someone showed up, they'd have food um, ready for them. And the State Department said, you've got to try, you've got to try some of all the food. So I thought, all right, I got to try the food. Well, wow. <laughs> I'd come running in after the first day and I, I'd ran probably about 40 miles at this point. It was 110 degrees. I, I'm dehydrated. You can imagine what it's like. 
Uh, and I come running into town and there's the mayor, there's a band playing, there's people in traditional costume, dancers. <laughs> I'm standing there just, you know, ready to collapse. You're like, where's the cold water? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And they bring over this platter of food and this, there was enough food there for 30 people hmm. and and all kinds of stuff. One thing I learned um, is that, you know, they, they eat horse meat there. So there's a lot of horse meat. <laughs> I was going to say goat, but yeah, horse. Yeah, I've never had horse meat before. But then the, the mayor's wife hands me this cup. And the cup looked like, if you could imagine a coconut cut in half. It was like a, a half a coconut. And there's this white stuff inside. And she hands it to me to drink. And I'm looking at it thinking, what is this stuff? You know, is it coconut water? What is it? Right. But there are 3,000 3, people looking at me as she hands me this thing. So I got to have some. Well, I take a sip of it, and it I almost fell over. It was, I could describe it as, as best as seeing sour cream with uh, curdled milk. Oh, wow. And it was warm. It was this stuff called kumis, which is, it's, it's horse milk. It's wow. fermented horse milk. Yeah. yeah. So it tastes like pickle juice and, and sour cream as a drink. And that's what I, and it was warm. And that's what I had after running... 40 miles across the desert. And you're probably like, <laughs> stomach, do not rebel right now in front of this crowd. Oh my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? I was, it took everything I had to hold it in and, wow. and not just grimace. Yeah. <laughs> you do your country proud, Dean. Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask, <laughs> did you have any type of digestive issues or stomach rebellion after eating more local foods that, you know, sometimes can be a little bit unsettling? You know, surprisingly, I, I really didn't have any issues at all. Yeah. I think, you know, that, I think that kumis, you know, it's fermented horse milk. I think it's probably got all sorts of antibacterial properties. <laughs> Probiotics like, like galore. <laughs> yeah, it's probably really healthy. Yeah. It'll be the new fad at ultra marathons now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's the equivalent of drinking Parmesan cheese. That's what it mm. tastes like. It is so strong. Yeah. That is... Okay, well, that doesn't sound too bad. I like Parmesan cheese. <laughs> Trevor doesn't like sour cream, though, so that was probably going <laughs> to... Yeah. Did any of the people there run with you? Thousands. Okay. Thousands. Yep. Uh, there were some more organized groups. A lot of military guys ran with me. High school students came out and ran with me. Kids ran with me. It was amazing. And some of the cities are more sophisticated than, you know, some of the townships. So, I mean, there are cross-country teams, high school cross-country teams, like good, you know, runners that came out and ran with me. And then, you know, there were obviously, there were villagers that were running in sandals at certain points. So it was a really amazing experience. So, Dean, I'm curious, how many countries of the world have you run in now? I mean, you've, you're widely, widely traveled. Yeah, you know, I should calculate. I should tally that up. I'm, it's probably, I'm sure it's over 50, probably 60, maybe more. I've been on all seven continents twice. I know that. When I, uh, when I renew my passport, I don't know if you guys know this, when you renew your passport, you can get a passport that has extra pages. Yes. It costs more, but that's what they issue to diplomats. So I have a passport that it's really fat and it's, I should just look at all the stamps in there. Looks like you're carrying around a novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a novel's worth of experience, that's for sure. So your, your newest book here, uh, Running for Good, 101 Stories for Runners and Walkers to Get You Going. It's a chicken soup for the soul book. How did this book come about? Well, this is my, uh, my second collaboration with Chicken Soup for the Soul uh, on a running book. And okay. the format of Chicken Soup for the Soul uh, is that it's 101 stories by 101 different contributors. 
So it's not my book. I wrote the introduction, but the other stories are from other runners and walkers. Mm -hmm. It's not just elite, you know, ultra marathoners uh, that wrote chapters. A lot of people are everyday runners. You know, some are not even uh, runners, they're walkers. And so it's their story about how running or walking has brought good to their life. And, you know, you guys are runners and you know all the ways um, that running has contributed good, either, you know, you losing weight personally or becoming healthy or, you know, overcoming addiction. We also know about uh, how much money uh, has been raised for charity through running. So uh, there's a lot of great stories in there for all levels of people. And, you know, they're all uh, short stories. So they're easily digestible. Like, you know, you can read one or two stories at night or on a plane and they're extremely motivating. That's part of the reason I, I really like my partnership with Chicken Soup for the Soul is that it's inspiring and motivating stuff. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of running books available to, to people and a lot of uh, coaching and training manual. And those are well and good. But unless you have that internal fire, you know, that, that motivation to actually follow these, these training plans, they don't really mean much, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, th this book is, if you're looking for some motivation, a kick in the butt to, to really ramp up your training, you know, check out uh, Running for Good. So I'm wondering, you've run all over the world. Have you ever suffered with a lack of motivation? I mean, what keeps you motivated in your own training, your own running adventures? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, you know, I've never really suffered from a lack of motivation. And I think, you know, one is that I travel a lot. So I get to see and run in a lot of different areas. But even when I'm uh, at my house, I don't know, I never run the same route twice. So I'm always mixing it up. Sometimes I run on the trails by myself, you know, for many hours. But other times I do like urban runs. So I run through urban areas. And I run through areas where not a lot of people run. I mean, there are, you know, there are areas in town that are, quote unquote, the bad section of town, if you will. And I run through those areas all the time. And you get some wonderful, beautiful looks from people that don't expect to see a runner coming down their street. So I think any runner has experienced this. There's something about running that it's enlivening to other people, to viewers. Like even when you're driving, when you're running, you know, someone will pass and they'll give you a thumbs up, you know, they'll shoot you a peace sign. There's just something about the human form running. You're, you're vulnerable as a runner. You know, you just, you're just putting yourself out there. And I don't know, there's, there's something motivational and inspirational about that. And running through these quote unquote, you know, bad sections of town, uh, I feel like it's it's kind of doing a service to people and maybe they're getting a little inspired by a guy, you know, that could run anywhere is choosing to run down their street. Yeah, I like that a lot because like you said, you travel a lot, but I'm sure you feel really just blessed to be able to run your, your routes around your house and experience different things. And And probably I've heard you say before that you're more of an introvert. So probably running alone kind of helps you reset maybe from all the events that you do and all the traveling. And all the interviews. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you guys, here I am talking, you know, I'm nervous as heck right now. You guys probably don't even know it. But, and, you know, how many interviews have I done? You know, quite a few, but they all make me kind of tense and nervous. And I, there's nothing I look forward to more than going for a run after after an interview. <laughs> it's like you've, you've earned that stress release afterwards. My, uh, <laughs> yeah. My, my favorite is your David Letterman interview. And you weren't really trying to be funny, but you kind of made an indie window. He kind of uh, carried the joke out from there, but something about like, you're not fast, but you last a long time. And then, am I remembering this correctly? You are. It, it was, yeah. It's, I, and I, I actually have a, uh, that, that clip is up on my website and it is, it's really funny. I, I didn't mean to say it the way I said it, but the way I said it, it was, it was kind of an innuendo and the audience caught on to it before he did. <laughs> 
but but it's a it's a funny interview when you watch it. Um, you know, there's a point where he says, uh, you know, I said I was going to attempt to run 300 miles, and he's looking at me like, ah, bah, wah, bah. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, are you questioning my intelligence? And he's like, uh, no, I think that was established earlier. <laughs> and he said, really, but he's just, he's so quick on his feet. But. Yeah, that's awesome. So another thing we wanted to ask you about is, uh, I think I seem to remember that you had an injury out running is in South America and you're kind of the guy that never got injured. And, and so what happened? Was it last year? It was last year. Yep. And uh, what happened is that I had been on this kind of global tour. So I just had flown from Athens, Greece, where I'd been racing in Europe to Chile, um, to Santiago for uh, a North Face event, a 100 miler, a really tough 100 miler. And what happened is that I forgot to charge my backup headlamp in between all the travel and jet lag and time zone differences and so forth. So at about, I don't know, 4, 4.30 in the morning, my primary headlamp that I was running with ran out of juice. So I pulled out my backup uh, and it wasn't charged. Mm. I forgot to charge it. So now I'm kind of running, stumbling in the dark on this trail. Oh, no. And which actually was a good thing because I, I needed to back down my pace. So I, you know, it forced me to go slower. And then dawn started emerging. So there was there was light and I got to a section of trail where it was no longer technical. It was more like just a graded fire road. Uh, so I started running pretty hard. And of course, what do I do? I, I kick a rock <laughs> mm. and just went flying. You know, I, it was it was still kind of dark. So I kicked a rock and went flying and uh, landed on another rock on my rib. Ooh. So I, I cracked my rib. And that is a really painful injury, I learned, because when you run, uh, you breathe. And when you breathe, you expand and contract your chest. And when you have a cracked rib, you don't want to expand and contract your chest. <laughs> you don't hardly want to breathe. <laughs> so, no, yeah. And you don't want to laugh. Uh, there's a lot of things I learned when you when you got a cracked rib that really are painful. I think, you know, the good in it is it was really the first time I got injured, but it wasn't an overuse injury. It was, it was yeah. from a fall. And the other good thing is that it didn't really slow me down. I mean, it was just painful to run, but it wasn't like having a stress fracture in my leg or, you know, having any sort of um, Achilles problem or any sort of overuse problem. I could still run just fine. It's just it hurt to breathe in and out. As much trail running as you do, you've probably taken quite a few falls huh? through the years. I've had my share of tumbles. Yeah, I think that um, there was a point where I was, I was falling quite a bit and I thought, this has got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> So now, like, I really, the last couple of years, I've really tuned in to uh, pay attention to every step. It's never in the really tricky technical sections that you fall. It's always in the sections either, you know, after that, when you think, oh, okay, now, now I can actually run really hard. Like, things are clear at this point, and you don't pay attention. That's when it happens. So I'm kind of wondering, do you have, like, a failure or a mistake, like, related to running that has kind of changed your perspective or has maybe taught you something about yourself or, or the way you look at the world? I mean, you know, the, the, the lessons from running uh, translate to life. I mean, we, I think we all know that. Mm -hmm. And we've seen um, that really shared suffering brings people together. Um, if you've ever run uh, an ultra marathon or, or a marathon, um, you know that the first half of the race, you're, you're racing against people, right? You're passing people, they're passing you, you know, that guy's, you know, I've got a mark on that guy and he's trying to get in front of me, I'm trying to get in front of him. But there comes a point where you're just 
both so <laughs> beat the shit <laughs> that you're, you're almost like, you know, holding each other up. Like, come on, come on, bro, you can do it. Keep going. You know, and then you're faltering and you're struggling. And he's patting you on the back saying, come on, bro, pick it up. You can do it. So I think that the shared suffering really unites people in a, in a beautiful sort of way. And I've learned that through running. The other thing is that um, running itself is a great uniter. Um, there's so many things in this world that divide us, right? Um, you know, there's language barriers, there's border barriers, but running is something that all humans share, right? It's a commonality that brings us together. I mean, so many things divide us in this world and running is something that unites us. And runners are just universally really positive people. And, you know, as I've said, I've run on all seven continents twice. And it doesn't matter where, where you're at it. Runners are just great people in general. They just all have this really positive energy. And, and that's something I've really noticed um, as, as I've traveled around the world. Even if there's that language barrier there, just the smiles on people's faces, um, knowing that you share the love of running with them, I think definitely brings people together. Yeah, I mean, why do you guys think it is? I mean, you know, you know, you see it as well. You're running down the street and someone sees you and they smile. You know, they, there's something about seeing a runner that just makes other people happy. Why, why do you think that is? I think maybe it, it goes back to, um, you know, when you're out there and you have maybe those endorphins or you have that moment of peace. And I think it just brings back positive associations to runs that we've all had. And you're thinking, oh, that person's out there getting to enjoy that right now. It, it definitely is a kinship. You know, whenever I see a runner out, I'm like, oh, I wish I could be running right now. <laughs> but when, when I say a non-runner sees you running and it brings them some sort of joy, like you notice them smiling or giving you a thumbs up. Why, why do you think what you're doing resonates with them to a non-runner? Like I said that, you know, when I ran up to the van with those Russian guys, you know, they were supporting me. They weren't runners <laughs> at all. <laughs> they weren't athletes. Yeah. They just got excited to see me. I mean, they were just like, they were happy to see me come running in. And yep. why? There's something there. Yeah. I remember back to when I was a non-runner, not too long ago, actually. And I had no interest in running myself because, you know, it hurts and it's boring, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> But anyone who was out there doing it, I had mad respect for. So, yeah, I, people would run by. I would, you know, give them a thumbs up. Just got to respect the struggle that people are going through. Again, I think that's the human condition, you know, that we all suffer. We all, and it's on display when you're running. Yeah. You know, we all hurt. That's right. So, speaking of which, uh, we had one question about how you deal with the suffering while you're out there. Like, what's your mindset? Do you have any mindset tricks or tips you can give folks that are listening? Yeah, I mean, I've really shifted my paradigm on on the struggle and the pain. Mm. And I, I kind of welcome it now. I mean, there was a point where I thought, okay, maybe this will be the race where everything goes smoothly. <laughs> there's never such a race. If there's such a race, you're not racing, right? I mean, you're not, you're just not running hard enough, but there's going to be a point uh, where you're going to question, maybe this is a race I can't finish. You know, maybe this, this is the one I'm going to DNF. Um, this is too tough. This, I can't get through this. I really embrace those moments and I look at them as opportunities to reflect and learn about myself. So, you know, how do you respond? I mean, Running holds a mirror to you uh, that, unlike any other sport, right? You're you're pretty much revealed. Like when the going gets tough, you're on display. How are you going to respond? What do you do? What are you made of? You see those things, and it's a really unique opportunity because in everyday life, we really don't experience those sort of hardships, those kind of defining moments. But during a, a, a run, especially during an ultra marathon, you know, you encounter those moments, 
and you get to see yourself on display and you get to learn from it. So I embrace those painful moments when you're questioning everything. You're questioning, you know, your ability to keep going. Everything gets put into question. And it's really how do you respond to those moments? I think that's um, so telling. Yeah, that's awesome. So you started doing this crazy stuff when you were 30. If we may ask, how old are you now, Dean? <laughs> well, if I may ask you, are you referring to my um, chronological age or my biological age? Uh, I'm sorry. Chronological. <laughs> yeah. but let's start with biological. Let's start, let's, it's a lot younger. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've, I've had these assessments done where they, they look at your, your overall health. Yes. Uh, and they give you a rough assessment of how old you are equivalent in biological years. And I'm in about my mid thirties. Nice. Holding steady. So let's, let's, let's go with that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you do the math, you know, I've been, uh, I've been at this for, oh, more than, more than two decades. So you can, you can get a sense of my age. And, you know, the other thing is that for better or for worse, I, you know, I, I win a lot of my age group divisions now in races that I do. Right on. So the reason why I brought it up, because we do have lots of listeners who are masters runners and who are in their 50s. And I know there's different considerations as you get older. How, how are you keeping your biological years back in the 30s as your chronological years have gone on? You're younger than I am right now, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I view myself as an athlete and everything I do, everything I do in my life, I view as how are you going to be the best animal you can be? Like, how will this make you a better athlete or a worse athlete? So um, that has to do, I mean, it's not just one, like people say, what is your secret? Well, there's, my secret is I take a 360 degree approach to, to being an athlete. You know, everything I do in my life is tailored toward being the best that I can be. So, you know, it goes with nutrition. So, I, you know, really good about my diet. It goes with cross training. Like I cross train diligently because I think if you just run, especially as you get older, if you just run, it's a recipe for injury. So I do a lot of cross training and strength training, um, good quality sleep. Like I'm much, much more in tune now with my sleep patterns and trying to get good quality sleep. And the other thing that I think a lot of athletes overlook is your interpersonal relationships. Hmm. Do you have uh, harmonious and solid interpersonal relationships with your family, you know, with your work, with your colleagues, with your friends? I think it's, it's hugely disruptive if you're in bad relationships. I think a bad relationship um, crosses over into your performance without a doubt. So I put a lot of effort into having good, harmonious, interpersonal relationships with, with those people, either the, my loved ones or the, the people I interact with daily. Um, because again, that can really negatively impact your performance, I think, if, if you don't have good relationships. So I guess you're kind of looking at your life, your interactions as, are you being a force for good? You know, just like the book Running for Good, are you putting more good out in the world? Um, because that's, that has a ripple effect. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's really important. And, you know, as well as, like I said, I, I don't own a car. I, I'm very concerned about the state of the global environment. So uh, I try to do what I can, you know, myself and to be a good steward of the environment. And that just makes me, you know, feel better about who I am. Right on, man. And uh, I guess one last question. What, what do you have going on next? <laughs> You know, in the immediate in the immediate future, I mean, I you know, I've got a hundred mile race coming up here in California. Uh, it's called the Headlands Hundred. It's a really great event. So I've got that coming up. Uh, I've got a race called the Spartathlon, which is a hundred fifty three oh, yeah. mile race in Greece. 
Doing that again. And then doing it again. Right on. And then from there, I'm flying to Australia to run a race called the Black All 100K. So mm. I'm going, I, uh, I used to live in Australia. So I'm heading back to Australia to run that. And then from Australia, I'm flying directly to Washington, D.C. I'm giving the, uh, the keynote address at the Marine Corps Marathon oh, nice. at the uh, pre-race dinner. From there, I'm going to New York for the New York City Marathon. <laughs> Basically, that's how my life rolls day to day. But as far as big adventures, I, I think I might have mentioned this before. I'm, I'm trying to, um, to coordinate a, uh, a one-year expedition to run a marathon in every country of the world. Yeah. So I'd like to head out on a one-year global expedition and try to run a marathon in all 203 countries of the world. And it's a daunting task. And mm -hmm. I, the reason I say I might have mentioned it before is because I've been talking about doing this for the past five years and have yet to pull it off. So, you know, some people ask me, do you ever, do you ever fail? And, you know, this is a prime example. I'm, I'm failing at pulling this off and I will continue to fail at pulling it off until one day I do pull it off. And that's just my attitude. So that's what I got next is a marathon in every country of the world in one year. Because no one's ever done that yet. <laughs> yet. Yep, exactly. Yet. There'll always be the first. I'm sure just all the red tape is staggering. Probably a huge, huge challenge. Well, it's, it's you know I have relationships with the um, the State Department now, the U.S. Department of State, because of the Silk Road, and I also have relationships with the the UN. But you're right, the planning and logistics is really difficult, and. The State Department basically has a list of countries where they say, we can get you into this country, but you're going to have to set up a treadmill in the airport. Like, you're not leaving the airport. We may it's not too, get you out. too risky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that list keeps changing. It, you know, countries come on the list, go off the list, but it's been a moving target. One of, those days, one of these years, I'm going to hit that target. And then when you ask me how many countries have I visited, I will never have to uh, think about that question anymore. I can just say 203. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh, that'd be awesome. All right. Well, it's great to talk to you again, Dean, and you're always welcome back on the show, especially after you run a, you run a marathon in every country. We want to break that story right here <laughs> on the MTA podcast. <laughs> well, I want you guys to sign up for one of the countries and come run with me. Oh, yeah. That, that would be even better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Okay. Keep running strong. All right, well, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dean Karnazes. Always great to have him on the show. And yeah, definitely check out his uh, new book, Running for Good. And if you haven't ever read Ultra Marathon Man, his original book, that's a great read too. Yeah, I would recommend any of the books that he's written. They're, they're fascinating and will we'll get you inspired to you know, push your own limits. Well, in the quick tip segment today, you're going to hear about how to manage hunger during marathon training while still losing weight and keeping your energy levels stable. And this is actually going to be something special because we have a special guest, Quick Tipper, joining us. One of our most popular episodes of all time was with Angelo Poli, the founder of MetPro, a company that we've actually been working with in our own nutrition. So Angelo uh, joined us for the quick tip to answer this question, he's just a wealth of information. He's a metabolism expert, trainer, and coach. It's always fun to talk to the guy. He just has a really warm personality, too. It was great to have him share his knowledge in relation to this topic because it's something that I've struggled with in the past, for sure. Um, and my experience working with MetPro the last few months has been amazing. I had really kind of gotten to a place where I was f feeling fairly hopeless about my weight, which had increased over the years due to hormonal imbalance. And I you know, tried everything healthy that I could think of 
to get rid of the extra fat and it was not budging, which, you know, as a runner is super frustrating because, because your weight and your health and your running are kind of all linked together. Yeah. And I was having things like joint pain and just low energy, you know, stuff that is just not fun to deal with. So even after my hormones were stabilized and I was feeling better, it was like, I just had that stubborn fat that wouldn't budge no matter what I did with eating or training um, so, you know, I kind of came to working with MetPro. I was very skeptical that it was going to work because I tried a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but I found the program just to be absolutely amazing. And it's just a wonderful system of helping increase the body's metabolism so that it's focused on burning fat. You know, I don't like to be hungry. <laughs> That's <laughs> not high on my list of priorities. And so just knowing what macronutrients to eat broken down through breakfast, lunch, dinner, and two snacks made it super manageable. They have a really helpful app for you to track things. And of course, the support of your coach. And so yeah, over the last nine months, I've lost 30 pounds of fat and definitely seen my body composition change. And you know, my marathon times have started to drop again after a few years of being not so stellar for me. So you're able to qualify for Boston again. Yeah, the Charlevoix Marathon, I unexpectedly qualified for Boston. So yeah, I'm feeling really excited. um, And just grateful that I feel like I, I have my body back. And feel like a new and improved version of myself. Awesome. So we'll take this eternal question of how do you manage hunger during marathon training? It's a tough question and we will pitch it at Angelo and uh, here's what he had to say. All right. We are on the podcast now with Angelo Poli from MetPro. Angelo, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Angie, for having me back. And, and you made my day uh, when you said that your wife has been inspired to now run a marathon. Yes, she is. She's training every, every day nearly. She is dedicated to it. She is having the time of her life. So Taking the plunge, going from half to full Taking marathon. the plunge. <laughs> yep, that's it. That's it. She's doing great. And you also said that Angie's famous there now at MetPro because of all the progress. World I- famous at MetPro. <laughs> I'm probably infamous. He's infamous, yeah. (laughs) Infamous. Yes. Everybody talks about just, you know, your progress and how well you've done since coming on board with us. We actually, as a team, you know, we get together about every four to six weeks and celebrate wins and share some stories. We have some incredible stories of people's journey, not only whether it's weight loss or pro athletes or, or just regular folks hitting goals, but our culture is big on sharing those wins and just really uh, celebrate when we see people doing so well. And you are definitely, both of you, but Angie, you are crushing it. <laughs> Keep <laughs> well, it up. thank you. I've, I've been very fortunate to be on this journey with you guys. And the question we have for you today is definitely something that's on a lot of people's minds in our community. Um, People often are very hungry when they're marathon training. So the question is, how does one manage hunger during marathon training when the goal is to lose weight and keep energy levels stable? Yes. Okay. So that is the million dollar question. Um, Because really, what you're talking about is two opposing goals there. What we're trying to do is we're trying to improve our time, improve our distance, and actually push our body to new levels of performance. But this person also has a goal of weight loss. So balance has to be implemented. Um, Many meals, snacks, and here's the reason why those are so effective 
is because you can prepare them in advance. So I'm, I'm all about the practical, actionable uh, steps for people. And while going to someone and, and asking them to be ultra specific about, hey, can you eat this exact meal for dinner or this exact meal for lunch? Usually we can apply a principled approach. But I don't get the kickback when I say, hey, you know, <clears throat> based on what you're doing and your schedule and your running, I think having a snack here and a snack there, and I, I'd like it to be exactly this. Most people are fine with it. And in fact, they say, oh, great. It takes the guesswork out for me. I don't even have to think about it. I'm thrilled that I'm getting the coaching and you're telling me exactly what to do. And then if you prepare those in advance, that that's a huge factor. Now, for my more advanced athletes, you know, a, a lot of runners, a lot of my triathletes, and even some of my strength sport athletes, a mantra that I'm constantly reminding them is calories you haven't yet eaten can't help you. So if you fall into that category where you are modulating how much, modifying how much you're eating because you're trying to perform better, but you're also managing weight, then it's going to be critical to get the bulk of your nutrition earlier in the day or at least surrounding your athletic activities. So I, I've had athletes that have just transformed their performance simply by packing more of their food into kind of a time frame prior to their running or their event or their sport, whatever the case may be. A lot of times what happens is somebody is getting over the course of the day enough calories or enough carbohydrates, whatever the, ca the case may be. But by the time they get to their training, they haven't gotten enough. So calories you haven't yet eaten can't help you. So sometimes somebody does, for example, a, a early afternoon training. I'll ask them to already have three, sometimes four meals in the bag prior to that. And what does that do? Well, it means maybe they won't have as many snacks after dinner. Um, so they might be a little more hungry then, which can be challenging, but they're just getting ready to go to bed. They're not necessarily getting ready to redline their body. So really give consideration to when you're going to be uh, exercising and, and position your food around that. And then the last tip for that would be <clears throat> be honest with yourself. Beginners, you, you can do both. You can lean out. You can improve your times. You can see improvement in your athletic prowess all while your body changes but you'll quickly hit a threshold where you have to make some choices and so it's not a matter of pick one it's a matter of pick which one first that's all and so look at your schedule pull out your training schedule and say okay i have a race coming up in 12 weeks that means if i know that i want to be at a lighter weight i can push for that for the next four weeks but i'm going to give myself a good, you know, eight week run of all the fuel I need. So I am on point to really perform my best when that race day arrives. And then after that race day, hey, maybe you can get another stint of a few weeks where you can swing the dial a little bit more towards body composition. And that is important. I, I see a lot of athletes that know, hey, I, I perform better at a lighter weight. My cyclists are that way and definitely my runners are that way. 
But remember, that is only the case if you're at that weight getting the fuel you need. If you have to go into a deficit to get there, you'll probably perform better a few pounds heavier. So it's not if you can lose the weight, it's when to push for those and cycling. And that that's what our coaching really revolves around at MetPro is pull out your calendar. We're going to make sense of what your schedule looks like and pick the times where we're going to do a cutting cycle and the times where we're going to do a performance cycle. Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense. I know when our nutrition coach, Natalie, and I talk, it's like, okay, I've got, you know, sometimes I have multiple events on the calendar, but I'm like, right now, fat loss is a priority to me. So I'm putting aside often time goals to be able to maintain that and everything. And then, you know, she does her best to, like you said, periodize the nutrition so that I'm you know, feeling is. good on race day as well. But like you said, sometimes you have to make choices. You can't have it all, all at once. <laughs> That's it. That's where the specificity comes in for each person. Awesome. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us, Angelo, and uh, keep up the great work there at MedPro. Thank you so much. All right, so Angie, it sounds like it is possible to not be hungry all the time during marathon training or to not start inexplicably gaining weight, which does happen to a lot of runners. That's right. I think it's all about being intentional and understanding what you're up against, too, because I, I know in previous marathon training cycles, I would you know, be very frustrated because I would get super, super hungry and I was not eating to support my activities. I, I would go too long between meals or snacks and then I would get so super hungry that I would often make maybe less than ideal choices when it comes to fat loss. Yeah, been there, done that. Like, <laughs> like gorging on a pound of peanuts. <laughs> or, you know, falling face first into a bag of Cheetos and I'm like, what am I even doing, you know, but you're just, you get hungry and you don't make the best choices. So I definitely have benefited from having a plan, having a system, having a coach be able to guide me through these periods of down adjust and up adjust. He referred to turning the dial up and turning the dial down. And that's the whole technique, right? He's talking about down adjusting and up adjusting. Exactly. Turning the dial up would be giving yourself more calories, more food to support maybe those higher training weeks. And as you get closer to race day where you, know, you want your strength and your performance to be really strong, um, turning the dial down would be during more of like a cutting cycle where you're putting performance slightly more on the back burner and you're focusing on really adjusting your body composition, uh, maybe dialing in that fat loss, uh, realizing that it's a temporary period and then your body wants to be in homeostasis. So you can't cut forever. It's, it's not beneficial. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people often come from plans where they think, oh, you know, I need to keep cutting calories or keep cutting certain things out in order to lose fat. Well, your body's going to have enough of that at a certain point, especially if you're training hard. And so you have to give your body that contrast so that not only you can reach your body composition goals, but that you can feel good and run strong at the same time. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. Hope that helps you guys. And by the way, if you want to get a free consultation call with the folks at MetPro, if you think it's something that would be a big help to you in your weight loss or body composition goals, just go to metpro.co forward slash MTA. That's a dot co, not a dot com. And you can set up a free consultation call and learn how it works. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA. 
And like we said at the beginning of the show, if you're going to be at any of the races that we mentioned that we're going to be at later this year, shoot us an email through our contact form on our website or reach out on social media. We're at Marathon Academy on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much for being a listener to the podcast. You guys are awesome. Until next time, remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Hey, 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 hey